Before we continue, I've just finished listening to a new episode from The Case Files. A warning, tissues are needed. It's an upsetting but very important story of a woman being repeatedly ignored by medical staff with tragic consequences. A mother's worst nightmare became a reality for Muna Abarizik. She knew something was wrong with her baby Mohammed, but multiple medical professionals missed signs of a deadly disease. Her case led to changes being made in medical practices, and it's just one of the many in the series of real-life stories behind some of the most astonishing cases in recent legal history, and how people have been able to use the legal system to right wrongs and get justice. So while you're waiting for the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, go and have a listen to The Case Files. You won't be disappointed. Welcome to this special episode of The Storyteller Violent Delights with me, Isla Traquair. Well, I thought the story was over, but as with all good stories, there is a twist at the end. Actually, I have a few, and they even surprise me. The first part of this episode is a bit of a monologue recorded the day after I'd completed the original edit, and it was prompted by a long phone conversation I had with a detective whose insight has not yet been heard. And the second part is a new interview and one I had not been expecting. I was contacted after the podcast began broadcasting by someone who really wanted to share their very unique and heartbreaking insight into Sheila Garvey's life. So bear with me through the monologue and you'll hear the final piece of this utterly tragic tale. So I'm sitting at my laptop, where I have spent uh, months and months beavering away, editing this series. And as always, I'm on the search for the truth. And I do everything I can to reach that goal uh, through interviewing as many people as I can and trying to get as clear a picture as I can and put across all the different sides of the story, certainly the ones that I'm able to get hold of in this case, which has been definitely challenging due to the age of this case and the fact that many people have passed away and also the fact that um, the one person that would possibly be able to give us an insight into Max, his sister, Hilda, who's still alive, um, she has declined to take part, which I can understand. The things that came out about her brother were not something that, uh, you know, a family would really want to talk about. But I'm sure... There were definitely good sides to Max Garvey. Uh, he was very dedicated to agriculture, did a lot for the community, for the flying community, and was seen as a, a very generous person. But without doubt, we have learned that he had flaws. Now, there's another person that I had been very hopeful that I could record an interview with. And he's a former police officer who was probably the most involved or the one that remains alive that was the most involved with the case and with the people. He has, due to ill health, uh, declined to be recorded. But I have had multiple long conversations with him and um, he has kindly allowed me to uh, quote and paraphrase him to give you a clearer picture, a rounder picture 
of what he experienced during his time on this case. And this is a case that really, it did affect him. He says he doesn't, he didn't really enjoy revisiting it. He was happy to talk and, and he's incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, his memory is just remarkable. But I wanted to share some of his thoughts so that you, the listeners, I never want to tell you what to think. And I try and let everyone speak for themselves. And I join the dots at some points and nudge you in a particular direction to understand something. But I don't ever want to express my opinion. But I think it's really important that you hear, hear his. So to start with, he was involved at the very beginning. And he was in the county police, uh, which were the ones leading the inquiry. And of course, they were assisted by the city police who did a lot of the forensics. And he was suspicious about Max's disappearance from the beginning. And was told to not make too much of a fuss. There were some internal politics and um, he felt that it needed to be taken a bit more seriously. And... Um, his concerns were pushed aside, one might say, but he kept on at it. Um, and I think uh, one of the reasons the, the case ended up being solved um, might be, you know, his determination. And of course, um, Edith Watson was the, the key that turned the lock um, to opening up the rest of it. He was involved with the interviews with Sheila and Brian um, the, the day and the, the night that they were being questioned. And um, his opinion was that Sheila was quite cold. He said that about two, three in the morning, he offered her a cup of coffee, which she refused. And she said something along the lines of, there'll be hell to pay when my husband walks through that door. This same officer hours later, was in the tunnel um, with Max's decaying body. And he found it hard to kind of reconcile the way she was when they were first interviewing her with what they then discovered had happened. And of course, it wasn't till the day after that she um, asked to speak to the inspector. Um, Jim Murray to tell her side of the story. He believes that she definitely was involved in the planning. He says that uh, Brian Tevendale was absolutely infatuated with her and would have done anything for her. He didn't feel that that was reciprocated. He described her as a survivor and that she would do what she needed to do to survive. He actually said that she was um she was cold as ice. Now with regards to Alfie Burse and Trudy Burse's involvement, um I did ask him about had a deal been done behind the scenes that uh Alfie had agreed to give evidence as a witness. And he said that he actually does remember um hearing that originally five people were going to be charged but he believes that the Crown decided that if they were all accused then they would have no one to give evidence and possibly less chance of securing convictions and he believes that was the reason why um, Trudy and Alfie were there as Crown witnesses rather than 
as accused. He does believe, though, that Alfie Burst should have been charged in relation to disposing of the, the mattress. Interestingly, with regards to Alan Peters, and he also um, was up close and personal with uh, him. Excuse me, that is my dog barking in the background. Um, this is me very much riffing. It's <laughs> my dog too. With regards to Alan Peters, he still has his notes, actually. He said that um, he's absolutely certain that Alan Peters knew exactly what was going on. He recalls that Alan had mentioned um, Brian was having difficulty with his girlfriend's husband and wanted to get rid of him. And those were the words that were in the statement. They needed to get rid, rid of a guy. He said that Alan had agreed to do that. He's actually not entirely convinced that Brian was the... He thinks that Brian shot him, but he thinks that uh, Alan did, in fact, uh, have some physical involvement in the murder and thinks that Brian had a momentary lapse of uh, bravery when carrying out the deed and Alan had, had stunned him and hit him first. Brian then shot him. Uh, that's very interesting and obviously that's his opinion or his thoughts based on his discussions with these people. That is not a proven fact. But yeah, he said that he thinks that Alan was very lucky to get the sympathy of the jury and he thinks that that was partly because his uh, very young and very pregnant wife gave evidence in court. Interestingly, um, Alan Peters moved uh, to the village where this uh, retired officer uh, later moved to and um, apparently he used to go, Alan Peters would go to the local pub and was actually quite proud of his involvement and had boasted about it so there's definitely a different picture to the one that was portrayed in, in court and portrayed in the press and uh, I guess the image that was given of him. His overall kind of thought was that he felt that the the full story didn't come out and that was largely due to, as he described it, sort of the jousting uh, between lawyers and, um, you know, the Crown and the police. And parts of the story came out, but there's bits that get left out. Um, and those are for legal reasons. Um, if there's something that can't be proven, then if they, you know, mention that in a charge, it can make the entire um, accusation fall apart if they can't prove that particular part. But his overall feeling is that, yeah, Sheila, Sheila was involved. Um, he said he didn't have much sympathy for her, um, which is interesting. I mean, her her words, which Kate Dickey has so beautifully, beautifully performed, definitely, um, you know, um, inspired some sympathy for me. You know, I've read the book, obviously, and uh, I've read every single article that's been written about her. I've also spoken to the, the woman who wrote the book um, with Sheila. She, too, has declined the opportunity to um, take part for personal reasons, which I absolutely respect. Um, but, yeah, I mean, she said she wrote the book uh, with her very much, you know, it was the way that Sheila spoke. Um, so that, that is an accurate portrayal uh, of who she was. She was a very intelligent woman. But she too suspects that there was, there were there was a, a story that she'd come up with. Um, the the police officer described it in a beautiful way. He said he she sanitized, the version of events, 
for her, you know, for her benefit and convinced herself that uh, the truth was that she had been asleep at the time and wasn't really involved or she kind of, you know, shut her eyes to the fact that uh, Brian had planned this. But yeah, it's up to you all to think about uh, the various things that have been brought up in the story. Without doubt, a woman was in an abusive marriage. She did not have the support of the safe people she should have been able to go to. Her doctor, you know, the the local minister, her family, everyone pressured her to stay with her husband because that's what you did in those days. Um, She did try and get advice from a divorce lawyer and was told, you know, you'll lose everything. She did find herself in a very difficult position. If it were to happen now, I have absolutely no doubt she'd have been able to get divorced. Her and Brian Tevendale may have gone on and had an affair and stayed together or split up, who knows. But none of this would have happened. I think Max would have lived and she would have not gone to jail and they would have resolved their differences in some ways. And of course, Max's sexual desires and appetites would not have been as uh, viewed as being as disgraceful as they were in those days. He would have been able to... If he was uh, or had any homosexual tendencies, he would have been able to freely express those and um, live the way he wanted to. Uh, But that was not legal in Scotland at that time. In fact, I think it was 1980 that uh, homosexual intercourse was was made legal in Scotland. It was uh, legalised in England uh, years before. So I think it was important for me to tell this part of the story, um, leave you with it to think about. It's a story that's definitely made me think a lot about circumstances and and choices in life and situations people can end up in where they feel they have no escape. This has been a very different podcast because obviously the last series, our victim, Melanie Sturton, was uh, an absolute angel of a woman. Um, She could not be criticised. But of course, no one deserves to be shot in the back of the head while they sleep and their body to be shoved and dragged along a tunnel and left to rot. It was a very, very sad end to his life and his family, his children were deeply affected. Um, I should mention, of course, that I did try and reach out to the family and uh, that was declined. And again, I absolutely respect that. They were very young when this happened. And that is their choice and I appreciate they, you know, this is not something they would want to speak about. But actually I do hope that if any of the other relatives listen to this, um, they will hopefully feel that I've done done their relatives some justice. Um, not everyone is bad, not everyone is good. Um, but this is the most truthful version that I could tell of the story. Royal Deeside, an impressive building lies within attractive grounds. With a granite tower in the centre and wings extending out on either side, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was some sort of palace. Built in 1900, Glen O'Dee was originally built as a sanctuary for TB patients due to the abundance of the miracle cure of fresh air. It later became a luxury hotel and in 1941 was taken over by the army for soldier training. The Red Cross then purchased it post-war 
and had it reinstated as a sanatorium for men and women suffering from TB. The Queen whose Scottish retreat Balmoral Castle lies just 30 miles west, performed the opening ceremony. In 1955, it became an NHS hospital. On the grounds was a new building, a modern secure unit for patients. One of them was Sheila Garvey. She wasn't allowed outside unless accompanied. She was, for her own safety, locked up again. But there was a far worse prison she endured, which had no walls or locked doors. She was trapped in her mind. A nurse who cared for her and got close to her in her final years has given me a heartbreaking insight into what Sheila endured. For professional reasons, she's asked to have her voice changed and for the purposes of this, I'll refer to her as Maggie. Maggie painted a picture of a well-presented and impeccably mannered woman who loved being outdoors in the hospital gardens and knew the names of flowers and could identify birds. I met Sheila while I was um, caring for her while she had Alzheimer's. Um, she definitely liked being outside. Um, so every opportunity she got, she would definitely be out. Um, whether it was rain or whatever, she really liked being outside. She just she just liked looking about. I think it was having a wee bit of freedom and fresh air. And she just seemed to even there would be a wee garden outside and she would you would actually have to say to her, right, come on, we need to go back inside because she would probably have sat there the whole day. Sheila was happy in nature, her only reprieve from her living mental nightmare. Perhaps Sheila's strong desire for her outdoor freedom was an echo from her period of incarceration. But she also demonstrated a strong desire to maintain her privacy and dignity which may also be a consequence of being forced into nudism in her younger years. She always had her hair done, she always looked immaculate, she liked everything to match, so her clothes always matched. Um, she was completely independent with that, she never needed um, help with that when I was with her, but she was a very private person as well. Um, like a lot of residents would need help to wash and dress or you just go back and forward to make sure that they were managing. But Sheila um, didn't like you going behind the, the curtains. Um, she didn't like you to see her um, getting undressed. So it's like she wanted to maintain her modesty? Yeah, she just didn't like anybody seeing her. Um, no clothes on, really. Um, if you did go behind the curtain, she got a bit anxious and then just asked you to leave and then she would come out when um, she was all ready to go. To begin with, Sheila was like any other patient under Maggie's care, until one day she blurted out the truth about her past. Sheila was um, like a cigarette, so um, I often used to take her outside. So we would just be walking about in the garden or sitting um, on the benches and one day she'd just come out with that... Um, her husband was murdered and she was in prison for it. Um, so I was a bit shocked by it because um, I'd obviously known her for a wee while before that conversation had come out. I would never have expected her to be part of that. Um, to, to begin with, I just thought she was joking. I just tried to laugh it off. Um, so that was the start of, the, of our conversations about it. I don't even know what made her tell me because we weren't 
even having a conversation about husbands or crime or anything like that she just all of a sudden blurted it out um, and it was like she felt like she needed to get something off her chest it was just like thrown at me but she didn't um look embarrassed or anything like that it was just this is what I've, I've done really or I've been accused of doing and then what happened after that how did you find out the truth I'd obviously gone back inside with her and I'd mentioned it to a few other people that worked there and they had said yeah it was correct um, and asked and then said that she'd written a book so I went to the library to get her book so I can read it because by that time I was really in intrigued by it because I just couldn't believe that this little old woman could possibly have done something like that. So um, I'd obviously read the book and um, during work, obviously I was back out um, with her outside and she was having her cigarettes and things and again she would go right back to the beginning of saying oh I, I was in jail for murdering my husband um, I didn't really ask her much questions because I didn't feel it was my place to dig into it but um, she would then go into more detail and say things like um, my husband wasn't very nice um, he would make her do things that she didn't want to do she felt trapped she felt like there was no way out um, that she had met this boyfriend through her husband um, and she felt like he was going to be her way out of the situation. Did she ever talk about Brian in a, in a loving and fond way? She never mentioned him by name. So he, he was never Brian. He, she always referred to him as her boyfriend. Um, so like she'd obviously spoken about her daughter, things like that. She, had spoken about her husband, but she never physically named anyone. But it was as though that Brian was still her boyfriend because she never referred to him as like an ex-boyfriend or an ex-partner, anything like that, that he was her boyfriend. So tell me a little bit about the condition of Alzheimer's and possibly what you observed of her about the period of time in which she seemed to be stuck. Sometimes people with Alzheimer's do kind of get stuck in a time zone um, and I think that Sheila was stuck from about the last time that she's seen her children. So she almost ended up in a situation and obviously the hospital situation because of Alzheimer's she had to be but it's almost like she ended up in a prison again but also but also a prison of her mind because she was stuck in that period of time immediately before and after the murder. She remembered what happened to her. She remembered, obviously, about her husband, about her boyfriend. Um, so she seemed to be stuck in the middle where she's kind of accepted that she had been to prison. She acknowledged that her husband was dead, but unaware that her children had grown up. But she also claimed that um, she had no idea about the murder, that she had nothing to do with it, and that she was woken up by her boyfriend, so she didn't hear what was going on or anything. Um, and she still maintained that, even with Alzheimer's. So everything that she basically wrote in that book, she still says, even though she had memory loss.
it's almost like she was stuck in a groundhog day of torture. I think like during her time when I was with her, she always appeared to be a bit preoccupied, especially when it was just one-to-one outside in the garden. Um, she would always go into this conversations about what, you know, that she'd been in prison and things like that. And every time we were out, the, we go back to the beginning of the story and it was as though she had to tell somebody, she had to get it off her chest, she had to, I think she was trying to get her point across and of what she remembered of happening. Um, and I think that it just haunted her. She just constantly spoke about it. And did you feel sorry for her? I, I don't know who she thought we were or whatever, but I think she was trying to prove her innocence. When, when I was speaking to her, I remember, I remember saying to her once, no, you don't need to explain yourself to me. I'm not here to judge you. Um, and I remember saying that to her and she was just like, no, no, I want to tell you. Um, so I just feel like she wanted her side of the story out. In your opinion, with your knowledge about the condition, if she if she was to be telling a lie, would that be a very difficult thing to do? Personally, after speaking to her and obviously watching her, she um, certainly appeared to me like she was telling the truth. Um, she, I would find it quite difficult to believe that she could lie about it when she had Alzheimer's um, because she wouldn't have remembered what she'd previously said but she always said the same thing over and over again. Even though Sheila stuck to her story, Maggie didn't think it was out of the question that she had, as the detective suggested, sanitised her version. And it was so deeply ingrained that it became her truth. I think put anybody into a bad situation, anybody could be a murderer. Because I do think that fight or flight kicks in. And... I do think there are nasty people out there that will just murder somebody just for the hell of it. But in Sheila's case, I really, really think that she thought it was basically him or her and it was our only way out um, for that to happen. I don't think she was physical in, in the murder. Um, I would love to say she was innocent um, in the whole lot because I just thought she was a lovely, lovely person. But um, obviously knowing the, the story and things now that she probably did have a part in the planning. Um, but deep down, I do think she felt there was no other way out. And it was, he was either going to murder her or she have to do something else. And I think as well, she was trying to protect her children and she felt that she was doing the right thing. You said that uh, she had the impression that her children were young and she was parted from them. So was that quite painful to see? Yeah, definitely. She um, always spoke about them like they were still young children that um, they were being babysat, they were being looked after by somebody else. She never, I don't think she realised that her children were no longer children, they, they were adults, they'd grown up. She still referred to them as younger children 
and um, that she missed them, um, but she knew they were being well looked after. And in a way, it was kind of the last, you know, the last contact she had of them as her children and her being the role of the mother was when they were young. So it's kind of like they were frozen in time at that age. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even though she's spoken about being in prison and she spoke about her husband being murdered, she was definitely stuck in the time with her children where it was like when she had walked out, the last time she'd seen them, that is her memory of them and that they've never grown up. I mean, to begin with, like when she started telling my stories and I didn't know anything about it, it, was, it wasn't something that, you know, you, you started working there and you were told what oh, Sheila Garvey, she killed her husband. It was, it was never brought up in conversation with stuff. But obviously the more I got to learn from her and the more that other people told me and then I read her book, I just really felt really, really sorry for her. And speaking to her and hearing her trying to explain herself, I just felt heart sorry for her. Did you feel that she had a sadness about her life? Yeah, she was definitely sad. She, although she was very happy and she was always smiling, she never really sat with anybody else, any of the other residents. She did keep herself to herself. Um, and on one occasion, we got um, a new um, resident and his name was Max. And it was one day, um, there were people calling his name, so they were just shouting Max. And Sheila was sitting in the corner of the room, rocking back and forward, holding her ears. So she couldn't hear what they were saying, and she just looked absolutely terrified. So did you think that in her head that she thought that Max, her husband, was in the building? Absolutely. She thought that he was there because I had never ever seen her like that before. She was always happy, smiley. Even when she spoke about what had happened, she never shown fear. But as soon as somebody said his name, because I, I didn't know his name at that point in time, she had never referred to him as Max. So um, I didn't know his name. So when they were saying his name, I realised there was something wrong with her. And then they says, oh, her husband's name was Max. And that was the trigger to her being absolutely petrified. Absolutely petrified. Sheila had says to me things that um, her husband had made her do things she didn't want to do. She never went into any detail of what he had made her do. Just thought she didn't like it. She didn't want to do it, but he had made her do it. I don't know if she had the capacity to be able to go into any more detail because um, you, you could see that she was visibly upset about what she was trying to tell me, but it was more like she couldn't tell me. She, she couldn't really... All she knew was, I think all she could remember was that he wasn't a nice person and he made her do things that she didn't want to do and he wasn't nice to her. I never really had an opinion to begin with because I just thought, oh, obviously I'm here, I'm here to look after her. I'm, I'm not here to judge her. I'm not here to obviously know she was guilty or innocent or anything like that. I'm purely there to do my job and I would treat her exactly the same as anybody else. So it didn't matter what she'd done and what she hadn't done. But when I seen her looking absolutely petrified, I did think, I think you might be telling the truth and that you're 
trying to get your story out. To the best of Maggie's knowledge, Sheila only had one person visit her. An older woman, most likely a friend, who'd bring her cigarettes. Sheila used to entertain her guest and they'd take tea in her room behind a closed door. Perhaps briefly, she remembered being the lady of the house. There was one happy period in her life which she recalled fondly, her time with the royals. These memories were maybe enhanced a little, given Sheila was once again living in royal side in a building on a grand estate. She always spoke very fondly of them. Um, she never had actually told me that she worked for them. It was as though she was the royal family herself, that she was part of it. Um, it was like she went on about the lifestyle like she had lived it um, and like she she was part of the family, she lived with them, she um, did everything with them. Um, so I never, she never actually went into conversation and saying that she worked there. She always gave the impression that she was just one of them. So do you think her time as a youngster with the royals kind of almost gave her delusions of grandeur in a way that, that she wanted to be part of that high society? Yeah, she always came across then that she wanted, she did well in her life. Um, it was always that she was like upper class, really. Um, but she never really looked down her nose, if that makes sense. So looking back and you worked with her for a few years, how many times do you think she went through this sort of act of confession? Most days when I was working, um, when, I, when I would have taken her outside for a cigarette, she would have mentioned some sort of um, thing that had happened, whether it, she would bring up a conversation, just speaking in general about, um, like if she's seen a man, like it would be gardeners and things out. So she would see a man and be like, oh, he's not very nice, things like that. And then she would go into the story about her husband being um, not nice. But um, she would, every time we were out, so that would be a few times a week that she would have says it to me easily. So every few days over several years, she repeated this traumatic story yeah. in almost an act of confession as if it was for the first time. Of what had happened, yeah. You left that job and she died uh, not that long after, actually, but when you learnt of her death, how did that make you feel? I felt really sad because I, re I did really like Shiva. She, she was a lovely person. Um, she was, you know, she's always smiling, things like that. Um, but I kind of felt a bit relieved at the same time. It was kind of weird because I just felt like she was kind of free of her demons and um, that she was, she could finally rest in peace. Sheila's final days were a torture not many would want to inflict on their worst enemy. A never-ending cycle of realising she was parted from her children, she'd been in prison for murder, her almost daily need to confess as if it was for the first time. No matter her level of involvement, there is no doubt Sheila Garvey paid the price over and over. I turn to Shakespeare once more to express perfectly what I cannot. Never was a story 
more wool than this. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Storyteller, Violent Delights. It's written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. Thank you again to everyone who has taken part, all the interviewees, all the wonderful voice actors. I will post all their names online. If you've enjoyed this, please, please go to iTunes and rate and review. It really does make a big difference. Thank you once again. I'm Isla Traquair, The Storyteller. <laughs>